have a Bible with you, I'd love you to turn to Ephesians uh, chapter 5. So we carry on this series that we've been in. And you know, as we read through this, incredible words that were spoken to the church, not about you, but there's a sense of like deep challenge. Like every week I'm going, really? This is, this is who I'm meant to be. And just, I guess just as an encouragement, I haven't met anyone who kind of lives up to the standard yet. But I think, you know, this, Paul, Paul wrote it not for the perfect church, but for the, the real church, the honest church. Ephesians 5 and chapter 5 said this, For of this you can be sure, no moral, impure, greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such thing... God's wrath calms on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For once you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light and find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It's shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything that is exposed by light then becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, this is your word. This is your word spoken to the church in ancient times, but for us today. And we ask by your spirit, would you just reveal your heart to us? Come and speak to us. Let us know you, know your voice. We ask this in your name. Amen. I don't know what you think. As we read a passage like this today, it kind of, it feels a bit heavy, but it also feels a bit, a bit removed as well. Like as I read through this passage, my first reading, I looked at it, I was like, yeah, I, I could see why Paul would want to see it, say that to that church at that time. But I think there's something powerful in remembering that this was a letter to the church. In fact, more than that, it was a letter to, to a good church. This was a letter to a famously loving church. And beyond even this, it was to a people. To people who perhaps were keen to follow Jesus, but were getting a bit lost on the way. And as we look into this today, I think we need to do so with the eyes of human frailty, being really open to this. So I think, rather than read this passage and go, 
wow, there are some messed up people in this church who could really do with hearing this. I think a better sense is, how do I see myself in this passage? What is God saying to me? I spoke with someone recently, and they very honestly said this, I know I've had some pretty dark thoughts recently, some wrong thoughts that I'm not proud of. But rather than ignore them, I've used them as my way into prayer. If God knows me already, why would I hide these from my prayer life? There's enough pretense in our world, and probably nowhere more than in the church. Everything's always fine. Standard answer, isn't it? How are you doing? Oh, I'm good. I'm fine. Yeah. Really? Just heard you'd lost a leg. Or we wear our fancy clothes to impress our neighbours. Or we don't come forward for prayer because we're horrified about what people might think of us. We're more concerned about the person next to us thinks of us than what the God of the universe might want to do in us. We smile. We make the right noises. We're good at being great actors in church. And we need to know that the church, and particularly Jesus, doesn't need a fake version of ourselves. But bringing our whole selves, if we're honest, feels really hard and really hard in a passage like the one we've just read. If we apply our whole selves to this passage, we go, ooh, that feels tough. So I wonder what Paul is doing here. Because it could be really easy to read this passage through the wrong eyes. And in our kind of media-crazed, zealous, self-righteous age, I think we get the wrong end of this passage. We live at a time where cancel culture is rife, where we seem happy to publicly shame people, particularly on social media, where we no longer call people out in love on things or challenge them, but we ignore them and we cut them out and we ridicule them if they're different to us. And here's the thing, often people get cancelled for or rejected for things that aren't always good. Often people have made mistakes, but we do it in such a graceless way. But it speaks to what the, against what the Bible is about. And so it was, it's with these uh, eyes of kind of, of hatred and disapproval and cancelling that I want to make sure we don't bring to this passage I've heard people use this passage to kind of cruelly and unlovingly offer Jesus and miss what is actually going on. Because in here we find the grace that Paul's been speaking about. Up to this point, Paul uses the, the term grace 12 times in this book. And by the time we get to the beginning of chapter 5, he's already used it 11 of those 12 times. The point is that the living Paul is is calling us to, comes from a place of grace. Comes from a place of God's loving grace to us. And the problem with this kind of secular view of judgment, where we're happy to cancel people, we're happy to throw them under the bus, we're happy to say, you're so messed up, you're so wrong, you get everything wrong, how dare you speak like that, how dare you think like that, how dare you vote like that, or whatever. The problem with it is it has no understanding of grace. So ultimately, we all get it wrong at some point. So we're just waiting for it to be our turn to be cut off, to be ridiculed, to fall short. But it's not so with Jesus. 
Paul talks here, he says, if you're immoral, impure, or greedy, you're an idolater and you have no inheritance in Christ or God's kingdom, i.e. now or in the future. Well, good. Well, I wonder what we do with that. How many of you are able to kind of confidently stand up and go, yeah, well, I've never been immoral, impure, or greedy. Well, often we've divided this kind of thing up into those who say, well, absolutely, these people have messed up. You are wrong. You are naughty. Some of you more than others. You don't deserve anything. You are impure, immoral, and greedy. And we have that kind of camp. Or we have the other side of the camp where we go, actually, yeah, that does sound like me. Um, I am definitely all those things. Some of them might be easier to hide, but greed is a bit trickier to hide for some of us. So I'm just going to get my things and leave quietly. And we kind of have these two camps. And so we sit here thinking, gosh, everyone around me is a nightmare. They're really bad people. Or worse, we think God doesn't want me. But doesn't want me to share in this inheritance. And we have this kind of tragic black and white theology where it's one thing or the other. And I think this is so damaging where we say you're either in or you're out. But if you notice what Paul goes on to do, he says this, you are to live as children of the light. You are to find out what pleases the Lord. In other words, you're not there yet. You're not all you're meant to be yet. You're still on a journey. You are an unfinished story. The word live also translates probably more closely actually as walk. Are you making progress? Are you going somewhere? Are you learning to conduct yourself better? Are you improving a little bit? I think the most dangerous thing we can do is think there are no areas we no longer need to work on. No areas where we need to keep walking or journeying in. Or perhaps to put it more clearly, this passage is to us, to each one of us, to challenge us and to encourage us and ultimately to bring hope. But it's to each one of us. The call is to be living as children of the light. So I wonder if this helps. Um, if I were to say to you, um, guys, I'm actually living as a professional tennis player, it wouldn't take you very long to realize this doesn't quite add up. Like, to be honest, if you didn't have serious doubts about that before you walked out of this hall, I would have question marks over you. But I would say, hey, I, I, I play tennis every week without fail. I play with my friends. I'm actually quite good. In fact, I'm very good. But I'm, but I'm not a professional. You'd see that. Like my training, my diet, my apparent lack of ability would lead you to believe this guy is not a professional. But a professional would do these things. He would live in such a way as to do these things. Every day thinking about training, about diet, about regime. But here's the thing, that doesn't mean that they wouldn't ever lose or they wouldn't ever slip up in the things they were meant to do. But you would see in their daily way they live out their life, something is different to the way they live. And as we begin to look at this, living as children of the light doesn't mean we're perfect, but it does mean we're making active steps towards becoming 
more like our rabbi, Jesus. So what does it mean, firstly, we are the light? <clears throat> Excuse me. I've got to be honest, I read this passage wrong for years. I thought it said, for once you were in darkness, but now you are in light. But it doesn't say that. It says, for once you were darkness, but now you are light. Some of you are wondering, what's the difference? Well, it's really interesting because being light itself is different to being in light. Something has changed in us. Something, not just something has changed around us, but that something has changed in us. It doesn't mean we don't get things wrong, but it means our desires and our longings and our hopes have changed and are changing. In other words, when we were dark, we were only capable of darkness, but now we're capable of light. That doesn't mean we're always light, but it means we can be. If we are in light, we have a new surrounding, but being light means we are new people. We weren't just called to a new place. We were called to be a new version of ourselves in Jesus. And it's so more than just in the light. We are the light. If you look at the work of a jar we just heard about, if we were simply walking in the light, we would make no difference in prison because that is a dark, dark place. But because we now become in part the light of Jesus, it can make all the difference in those dark places. If we are light, it's not just that our hope is being close to God, but that God is in us. Our hope is not simply that he will guide us, but he will be the strength and the source for that journey too. Because we're not just light, because we're of the Lord, we are light in the Lord. We are light. And as such, we have the ability in part to become a visible witness of Jesus to the people around us. And it sounds really straightforward, but it's not. And Paul calls us out. He says this. He says, you know, we live in really evil days. And the way in which evil is portrayed in this passage is so different to how we often think about it. It isn't the obvious evil. Like if Chiquaza stood up now and hit me over the head. Well, some of you might think that's a good idea. But most of you, I hope, would think that's evil. But it isn't the obvious evil that's called out in this passage. If someone has a gun and shoots people, we know that's evil. But this is something more subtle. The words Paul uses are deceiving or be careful or don't be unwise. Because the way humans are designed is that we don't fall off cliffs, we slide down hills. We don't all of a sudden become bad. We incrementally slip into a place that's not good. We drift and slide, we allow things that make us do wrong things. We're deceived, Paul says, by the things of the world. Because the world around us is not designed to help us follow Jesus. Have you noticed that how the language of becoming like Jesus is not the language we choose? It's really anti kind of the world we live in. It says walk as children. It says don't run. It's not about running. It's not about getting there as soon as you can. It's not about everything being made perfect overnight. It's walk. So this is something we're trying to do again and again. And the call of this passage to become like Jesus comes with a warning. 
So don't play games. Don't become like the Jesus your culture wants. We often have a Jesus in our, in our kind of culture's image. Uh, Peterson, Eugene Peterson says this in the message version. You can be sure that using people, this is verse 5, or religion or things just for what you can get out of them will get you nowhere and certainly won't get you near the kingdom of God. Don't let yourselves get taken in by religious smooth talk. God gets furious with people who are full of religious sales talk but want nothing to do with him. Don't even hang around people like that. We're not meant to become like the Jesus our culture wants. And the challenge continues. And the challenge of this passage, I think, is, is tougher than we first see. You know, it's, don't be greedy or immoral. Well, we know that's tough. But the really tough thing, I think, he says is, be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. I wonder of us, how many even question the wisdom of our world? How many of us question the, the status quo of our time? Or do we go along with just the current popular opinions on sexuality, on money, on living and career and friendships? In the wisdom of our time says stuff like accumulation of more things can never be wrong. The liberal views of sexuality are the only ways humans can be defined. We must cancel those who disagree with our popular opinions. Or that individual human feelings mean more than the God's story. These are some of the things of the wisdom of our time. But we see globally them kind of coming and encroaching into the church. One of the things I hear time and time again in church is that, oh, you, you, you got more money in your job? Great, that must always be God. Really? I got bigger and better car, house, job. That must be God. Maybe. Are we willing to ask that question? Where our human feelings are, are more than the God story. Oh, I don't, I don't feel like what this says in the Bible, therefore it can't be Jesus. And feelings have become a barometer for our spirituality. And here's the fascinating thing. We are part of that evil. We are part of this stuff that's going wrong. And this passage is pretty clear that it's our poor choices that separate us from God. And that's not isolated. That is the scriptural narrative. That is Genesis 3 all the way through scripture. That it's our choices that separate us from God. That's the arc of the narrative. But here's the thing. This is not the end of the story. This isn't where the story ends. And so how do we go forward? How do we, how do we live in light of this? Well, we're called to live from the love of the Father and not into the love of the Father. We are called to live from the love of the Father. The, I think the worst way we could look at this passage is think it's about trying harder. I remember once uh, when I was at school, I got um, a school report and it said, it had this terrible line in it. It said, Chris must try harder in exams. I didn't want to be picky about... This is my English teacher. I thought it was a bad use of English. 
Christmas try harder on exams. So I reflected back to my teacher. I said, I think you've misunderstood something. I appreciate that my exam results need to be better, but it wasn't because I, was, I wasn't trying hard in exams. I turned up, and I wasn't like sitting, kicking back, you know, like this in my exam, going, oh, it's lovely. Did you see me in the exam? I was working furiously. I was doing all that I could in that moment. I wasn't having a party. I was trying really hard in my exam. The problem was the lead up to the exam. And you are misunderstood in your report card. A lack of work, focus, and diligence in the months leading up to the exam, that was what my problem was. But yet in the church, our answer is, oh yeah, just try harder. We read passages like today, and we flippantly suggest to people who have the courage to say, I'm struggling with this, just try harder. Could you just be a better person? Oh yeah, I never thought of that. Idiot. Of all the things that Christian practice needs, I would argue that central to our theology is we need to refigure where we start from and where we're going. Our recent historical theology suggested this. You need to sort yourself out, become pure, and then you'll find the Father in his love and be filled with the Spirit. It's not true. It's not what this passage is pointing to. So damaging. Think of the prodigal son. The prodigal son doesn't come back over the hill to the Father in a new suit looking good. He's got his career sorted out. No, he comes back a mess. Whilst we were still sinners, is the way the Bible describes it. Not when we've gone over that. In verse 18 to 20, it says, instead be filled with the Spirit. We choose to come to him and that's where we live from. This isn't a vision of what happens if we become perfect, but what happens if we open our eyes and find out what choices God is giving us. The antidote of darkness this passage alludes to. And the vision is not get yourself sorted and you'll be able to come to the Father, but rather be filled with the Spirit. We choose this place as the way in which we're able to live as God wants. I heard a wonderful story of a dad who insisted every morning, despite whatever was going on, that there was a family that would sit and have breakfast. And every morning we'd get up, make some coffee, get some food on the table. His small children's wife would come and sit with him. Sometimes the kid would sit on his knees. And if you know, if you know anything about mornings with small kids, it's messy, it's loud, it's rushing to get stuff done. You know, there's milk knocked over. There's the things being thrown around. It's a disaster. But he would insist that they would sit, despite all they had to go and do, all they had to get ready for, all the trying to, you know, in our house, it's like herding cats trying to get people out the door in the morning. Get them ready. But before all this, we're going to sit, and we're going to be, and we're going to be together before we go and do anything else. His kids in later life asked him, why, why this? Why breakfast together? Why was that important? He said, I wanted you to go into all you had before you from the arms of the Father. And that's the thing. We move towards life from the arms of the Father and not the other way around. 
We're not called to, to kind of be there figuring this out, hoping that at the end of the day, we somehow slip into God's arms, but rather know we are already there and that's where we go from. So if you're sat here today going, do you know what, I'm messed up, I'm greedy, I'm impure, immoral, whatever it is, you are allowed to open your eyes and realize you're in the arms of the Father and that's where God's Spirit comes and allows us to live as he has called us to live. Guys, will you stand with me? Just as I was praying, reflecting on this, I just felt God wanted to give us permission to bring our whole selves before him. In a world where so often we have to give a, a narrow view of ourselves to those around us, where so often we have to hide who we really are. But God knows and he still loves us. He knows the good and the bad, the ugly. And he loves us. And as we open our eyes to him, we find we're not trying to get into the Father's arms, but we're already there. So Lord, as we as we close this morning. What do you want to say to your people? How do you want to encourage them that you love them, that they would know your love? So I pray for each one of us as we stand here. As we respond in worship, that we would feel loved by the Father. one of us, we would know what it means to live out of the love of the Father. That each day, each meeting, each conversation, each encounter with our friends, with our kids, with our partner, we would walk into those out of the love of the Father. It would so shape us. be filled with the Spirit.
wanna grow like him. We wanna know Jesus.